welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 3, Stenhianicus and the Art of Mythic Cartography. Episode 4, Plaith Rickram, Part 2, The Road to Cruachan. From inside the dune, it sounded like an army approaching in full battle stance. The whole household of Kurokun stopped still, startled in their strength. Go see who is coming, said Maeve to her daughter. So Vindavar went to the high place of the house and looked out. The sight before her dazzled her vision. Too much dapple greys, high-stepping, high-mettled, manes and tails waving like flying flags advanced the yoke silver wicker chariot. Oh, the horses were beautiful. But better yet, the rider. Under a feather-plumed awning stood a tall man, upright and crimson, cloaked, glittering with gold. His curling hair browned at the scalp, but sunset blending from blood red to a diadem of yellow gold at the tips, covered his strong shoulders. In one hand he held a bronze-banded shield, and in the other a flame-bright javelin, five-barbed. "'Tell me what you see, girl,' snapped Maeve, and Findavar described the fast-approaching visitor." Oh, the long knife of proud victories, the all-noble, red-handed Logra, answered Maeve grimly, and he will not be alone. Look again. Oh, there's another following, no worse than the first, reported Findavar. Uh, there's a swift, vigorous roan and, and a broad bay horse, and they're much together in strength. Uh, and marvellous agility. Flawlessly they guide a silver pole, bronze wheel chariot, uh, and they're avoiding every obstacle, stump and stone. Oh, and the man who rides it under his bright plumed awning, oh, he's ruddy fair and wavy-haired. He has a mantle of blue and silver over a jerkin of clean white. Uh, oh, and there's a fine shield, brown with yellow bosses, and a fiery spear. Maeve grimaced. That's Colonel the Victorious. Now he will slaughter us with flails of iron, should he meet us in rage. Look, look again, girl. I, I, I see a third chariot coming over the plain, said Findavar, and her voice grew honey-coated as she stared into the distance. Oh, now here are horses that have no peer. They bound in beauty, spirited and powerful. Oh, one is grey, hoof-sundering, casting up great earth clods as he passes, so that flocks of birds fly in his wake. His breath so steam-hot that it seems that he breathes flame. And the other, darker in colour, is no less. The great beast is broad of back and sure of foot, lusty, spirited and fiery. Oh, a champion of many proud race he seems. And that chariot, it's of the finest wicker and wood, with richly gilded yoke and a bright pole of silver, bronze-mounted. Oh, but the man within seems well, almost melancholy, sad. Oh, but mother, he's so handsome. He, he wears a tunic of soft crimson, laid open at the neck and, and, and fastened with a salmon brooch of inlaid gold. Uh, just covering his strongly heaving chest. 
Uh, he has a white hooded robe embroidered in red gold draped uh, loosely over the strong shoulders. And his eyes, they flash proudly like dragonstones. And his teeth, mother, you'd think a shower of pearls had dropped into his mouth. And all those dark eyebrows framing the ruddy pink of his cheeks. Uh, oh, he's well armed, of course, mother. Oh, his huge crimson shield, chased with figures of animals in gold, is fastened over all oh, those magnificent shoulders. Uh, uh, and tied to the chariot frame is a blood-red, metalsome spear. Oh, but that's not all. Flat on broad muscle thighs lies his great golden-hilted sword, long and straight. Maeve looked sharply at her daughter. That's enough, she ordered. Truly, I recognise the man from your description. He's an ocean fury, a raging whale, a fragment of flame and fire, a grandiose bear, a windy billow. That's Cahullan, Kiro of Ulster. Now he will grind us to mould and gravel and let his pride and fury be subdued. Oh, come on, Findavar, stop gawping and call for the women of the house. There is much to prepare for our guests. Well, we'll come back to that description a little later, I think. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, today we leave Dan Rutheriger behind as our tale starts to weave a rather convoluted path between two other feasting halls. Indeed, those of Evan Macha in uh, Armagh and uh, of Cruachan, which is near to us here in Connacht and Kedras Common. Yeah, now, I suppose in general, what's interesting is that the, our feasting halls are located in a, a, a rich Neolithic landscape, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Kruken being a very good case in point, it's a vast uh, Neolithic landscape that's actually quite difficult to pinpoint one place to say, here is Rathcrohan. Mm -hmm. um, but of course then, they became the regional centres uh, in later society. And there are all sorts of places, like ring forts and, and um, enclosures. Yes. Set up. So you're right, it is hard to know. There is one called um, Rathcrohan. Yes. But it's one of many. Exactly, exactly. But it did obviously become then the centre for Connacht, the administrative centre, if you like, mm. or the royal centre for Connacht, as Evwin Macha did for Ulster. And that can't be a coincidence. And in fact, Tara. Yes, Equally well. a Neolithic site. Yeah, absolutely. Now, these were legendary sites, of course, by the time that our text was created, wasn't Exactly, it? yeah. It became literary. Yes, because our, 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 the written text dates from the 8th or early 9th century and when we're talking about these you know neolithic sites which are thousands of years old already but with iron age settlement which is hundreds of years by the time we get to these uh, literary texts being created so they're already and have become even early christian sites as exactly well, yes as so they, they have many different layers to their histories and brick Rue's feast as a text uh, it's quite typical of that structure um, of these various layers of activity in terms of the ancient site on which it's mm -hmm. based in that sort of Dinhenicus fashion uh, but that these early medieval texts are also looking back into this kind of heroic golden age and have a ritual tradition I think that demonstrates their yeah. oral part of their, their oral yeah. heritage is kept in that and as we mentioned last episode mm. a, a lot of this tale's history 
physical architecture changed comparatively little. Yes, because we were talking a lot about sort of feasting halls, but also then by extension roundhouses. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know that there are roundhouses as dwellings. They stayed round a long time. Didn't they, they really did. Yes, and I think the the earliest evidence for any rectangular building is, in Ireland is as late as the eighth century. Yeah, now that's referenced in Fergus Kelly's in, wonderful book, isn't in, it? Yes, in Early Irish Farming, which has a very a fascinating section on the textual descriptions of houses and which kind of houses were appropriate to what rank of person. You can find more information on an article I put out with yes. Podcast Brick Crew the one. Part 1, yes. Roundhouses and Their Stories. Yeah, there's a lot in there. And it is fascinating stuff, but it does sort of demonstrate how long the same basic architecture stayed around. And in fact, you know, in some of the descriptions in Creeth Gavlock, which is a, a legal status text, um, it does talk about how a royal house ought to have 12 chambers, just as Brickroof Brick is in the text. So the stories are not primary historical evidence, no. but they do support the archaeological records. They do, which is brilliant. And, I and like that, very yeah. Nice. yeah. So if it sounds as though we're hopping back and forth between the 1st century and the 8th or 9th century. Well, that's what happens when you deal with a literary story with a rich oral background. Yes, absolutely. Well, at the end of the last episode, we left Brickrew's Feast in a, oh, how do we describe it? A temporary state of peace and equilibrium. Everyone quite happy? For the time being. It's not going to last terribly long because, of course, the solution was to share the champion's portion for now. No, they're at each other's throats again quite quickly. Yes, what a surprise. Now, how does it... Chapter 6 starts with uh, Concover advising the heroes to go and ask Kuroi. But he wants them to be careful how they approach Kuroi. Yes, indeed. Now, Kuroi, we're going to be meeting him quite a lot. Yeah, and particularly in the next episode, Mm. uh, we're going to be discussing him quite a lot. Yeah, he's central to that. But for the moment, he turns up at this point. Mm. Now, Kuroi, I suppose we'd better talk a little bit about him. Besides that, I like talking about Kuroi. Oh, yes. He's... I thought he's mostly associated with Munster, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. Well, his um, spot, his centre, is in um, County Kerry. And this is your area. This, this is my, yeah, this is where part of me lives, certainly. Um, down on the Dingle Peninsula uh, in the Slievemish Mountains. Uh, one of them is called Cahar Cunry, which is the Cahar, uh, the city enclosure of Cunry, yeah. of Kuri. And he's, a, he's very much another world character, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he, he's always one for playing tricks and having strange disguises, appearing as a monster or, you know... A giant? Yeah, a giant in terms of the sort of the monstrous and uh, dangerous kind of otherworld creature. A shade more than a monster. Yeah. Um, Shadow. Yes, and, and in fact he's described in, in our text, he, they use the term scoth, which means shadow. There's the name Ferskoil, which means just an otherworld man, or Ferskoil mm. Moor, which is a great otherworld man. Um, these are the kinds of terms that are applied And he's to. often described as being rough, uncouth. Oh, yeah. Uh, what's the word? Uh, Backluck. Yeah, that's yeah. a good word, is, that one. Often translated as churl. Um, <laughs> but it's a good Rough. word in itself, yeah. You know who the... Oh, yeah, of course, I've forgotten. This great big oak club. Of course, yes. Now, doesn't this remind you of someone, doesn't it? It does, rather. Doesn't he sound like the Dagda? Very, very much. And I think that... As we go into looking into him more deeply next time, I think we may find there's there's so much that he shares with the Dagda, and including in this part of the story where um, he's 
uh, set up as a judge, very much like the dad. Yeah, He's the yeah. one who will judge the correct. Remember the uh, doctor whose judgments, if he never, you know, everything he said was therefore true. Exactly, exactly. But still very tricky to talk to. Scary, this one. He is. He's a little bit more of a, a shadow. Sort of shadow dagger. Yes. <laughs> okay, hold that thought. Yeah. But for the moment, back in the story, where it goes back to our heroes. Again. Yes. And they're at each other's throats as usual. Colin has a real go at Conal this time, yeah. doesn't he? Insults the chase chariot driving, tells him he's useless, yeah. doesn't know how to drive. Yeah. You know, it sounds like a group of young men having a It is set a group two. of young men having a set too and slagging yeah. each other Conal off. Conal explodes back, you know, oh, I'm more nimble than you. I'm this wonderful one-handed carrot, 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 chariot driver. <laughs> Mind you, you said that that might not be uh, quite so accurate. Well, part of the difficulty uh, with the Henderson translation that we're working from is that it is a collation of several manuscripts and the manuscript source that I've had a look at in the original language is from the Codex Vossianus mm-hmm. and uh, so that's when I'm talking about manuscript version that's the one that I'm comparing it, uh, it with and in the Codex um, this bragging about the the single person chariot and you know I'm so nimble and you know I'll go around the country in a flash and so on that comes directly after a bit of speech that's attributed to Cuchulain and so in that version it's Cuchulain who's the one who's bragging which sounds much more what like a Cuchulain. surprise yeah 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 <laughs> This is fairly typical. It sounds it like one of the Cuchulain stories. Yes, yeah. But sure enough, Logro, who's the oldest and yeah. was the first to act, mm-hmm. doesn't wait. He just gets going. Yes. Well, of course, he goes on this weird journey around the country. Yeah, and these journeys are something that they are important to the story. They would have been very recognisable to the original audience. Like the Plain of Two Forks, the yes. Gap of the Water, the Ford for of Carbot Fergus, yeah. the Ford of the Morrigan, the Rowan Meadow of the Two Oxen, and the Meeting of the Four Ways past on Dork, across them. Well, it's actually, they go across the Sligo from there. Yes, yeah. He's just going zigzagging across the country. Yes, yes. Oh, to the slopes of Bregia. Yeah. So you seem to be going, right, one minute you're in Dundalk. Yeah. Then he goes to Sligo. Yeah. Then he goes back to, to, uh, to basically, yeah. to Meath, yeah. Yeah, towards Dublin. Yeah. Vroom, vroom. Boom, like exactly. Is, yeah. Is he just showing off, or do you think there's more to it? I don't know. Um, what we will do because it, it's a bit difficult if you're not familiar with the places, and if you're not kind of familiar with the geography, then it might these places might not mean a lot to you. But what we are going to do is we are creating little maps uh, using Google Maps that will be on our blog, and you'll be able to see map out the journeys for yourself. Exactly. See and the see routes if, they take, and maybe some of them uh, they're definitely in Tianicus. Yes. Some of them may be there just to show how Cahullan can show off again. Exactly, yes. And and that even if he takes a, a very roundabout and circuitous route... He still gets there first! Exactly, exactly. <laughs> he's got seven league boots! boots. <laughs> oh my, his horses have got seven yeah. league boots. <laughs> but then, and then, and then... We're into a new story. Yeah. <laughs> it's very cinematic, though. The way yeah. does sudden change. Yeah. Uh, but it is a different story. And yeah. suddenly, to a modern audience, you're going, what happened? Yes. What are we doing now? Mm. But they're off. Uh, uh, and Logar and his charioteer get waylaid by mist. You can almost feel him driving off, and then suddenly the mood changes, and, and you get a sound. Yeah. Now, that's George, isn't it? 
Well, there's the soundtrack changing as he slows, and then a monstrous figure looms out of the mist. And then, of course, it's Kuroi. Yes, although he's in disguise at this point, as he is most times that we meet him. Yeah, well, it's described as broad and fat of mouth. Yes. Sack eyes and a bristly face. Yeah. Ugly, wrinkled and bushy eyebrows. Mm. Hideous, horrible and strong. Stubborn, violent and haughty. Bold, audacious and uncouth. And a shorn patch of hair, a uh, dun covering, and a tunic just up to the ball of his rump. Mm-hmm. And on his feet, old tattered shoes. Yeah. But on his back, a club like the wheel shaft of a mill. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about uh, that description, it sounds like it's just a collection of unconnected words. Mm-hmm. But that really is because it's in English. Yes, that in Irish, what you get are these sort of streams of alliterative adjectives so there, there's a music to the way that it sounds um, which I think is another nice piece of evidence that there are very strong oral elements to this story mm. um, so it's this, oh, it sounds good yeah exactly um, but and I have to say it could sound better in the translation I'm quoting from the Henderson and he's not poetic no he's not the best but anyway that's what we've got to work with so um, but it's again it's, sorry George Henderson. Yeah, he's long gone. I wouldn't worry. Um, it is very redolent, though, of the description of the sort of clownish description of the Dagda. Oh, it's in very dark. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, including this thing about you know his bottom being uncovered. You know that that he. Yes, it's making a clown of him. Mm. It's making him undignified. Yes, yes. Because his dignity comes from another source. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, you know, I mean, we can always re-reference yes. the Dagda description yeah. on the blog. But in in that in the Irish description, which is alliterative, it does call him Bachluck twice. Yes, in that peasant, one. This yeah. uh, uncle, this churl. Yeah. yeah. And the giant, this character, he's mm. described as a giant, although he's it's not. It's a scorth. It's a, this, this other is, world man. Yeah. Says that he will punish the trespasser for damage to his meadow. Yes. Well, meadow, it's, it's, that's an odd one, but we'll come back. I know we're mm. going to talk about that later. Mm. But anyway, he hits Logra's cham- charioteer on the head with his club. Yep. And then thrashes Logra himself. Yes. And Logra then whisks off back to Evelmacher with his tail between his legs, but without... Well, not his horse's tail. No, without his horses, without his chariot, and without his charioteer, which is very ungentlemanly of him, I think. Now, you said that your manuscript that mm. you're referring to orders the story differently, didn't you? Yes, um, that this episode does appear in the Codex Fossianus, but mm-hmm. not until after they've been to Kruokenenbach. Which makes more sense. It makes more sense as an oral telling. I think that what we have here is a literary device. Because in literature, you know, we, we've told you we're going to be meeting Kuroi a lot more later in, mm-hmm. in the next episode, in the third section, if you like. Um, and that's where this episode appears in that codex version. You're quite right. In, in a, if you're writing a, a story, mm. you will often put prefiguring, exactly. you'll put little hints yeah. and foreshadowings. Mm. It helps to break up the structure and make it more interesting. Yes. But if you're working with an audience and telling an oral story, yeah. you tend not to do that. No, you're more interested in a kind of a straight line. You want line. a straight line. A, yeah. a, a through, and you're interested in in the images leading mm. one onto another, yes. and giving, um, shall we say, uh, giving triggers mm. in your listeners' minds, yeah. you know, giving them the coat pegs to hang on to, yeah, yeah. because they, they they're having to make pictures in their own heads. So mm. yeah, I, I think we're absolutely right yeah. that it's it's a sign of a literary, yeah, that the story is, becoming yeah. literary. Well, then the same thing happens to Colonel, yes, exactly the same, yeah. But then the third time, of course, Colin comes along, be 
it's the giant and not only gets his horses back yeah gets the others horses and arms back and exactly. their charities too yes yes yeah. so takes them all back all of them with them yeah and he goes back to uh, uh, to evan and uh, of course brick then says okay you get the champions portion yes. you win i you know but the others say it's not fair exactly and in this instance the reason they won't accept this is that they reckon that the the scoff the shadow that they met was one of kuhulan's otherworld friends <laughs> that kuhulan <laughs> sent to play a trick on them right so that's, that's not fair yeah yeah, that's just one of your mates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have those other world exactly. friends like you. Yeah. That's not fair. Yeah. And we'll get this sense, you know, several times in this tale that Cuchulain has, he doesn't come from the same background as Loigra and Cuddle. And in fact, I think we did touch on Cuchulain's conception story yeah, in the last episode. He's another world character himself yeah. in some ways. Yeah, so, you know, it's it's... Not so heroic if it's an other world character defeating another other world character. I always get the feeling it's like going, going. That's not fair. You're not even meant to be in this yeah. story. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're some sort of god figure. Yeah. yeah. You know, son of Lou or whatever. Yeah. How, How are we supposed to compete How can with we that? Compete with that? We're just human. Exactly. We're real heroes. Yeah. You're yeah. a made-up character. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not fair. But yeah. it, it sometimes starts to feel like it that. Does a bit. Yeah. So once you get to chapter eight, it's almost like the story's reset again. Yeah, well, this is, I think, part of that literary structure um, because they tried to send the heroes down to Kuroi. Didn't get... take, because that belongs to the next section, really. Exactly. <laughs> so now they say, OK, well, we're not going to Kuroi. Well, let's go to Kuroi. Which is what we planned in the first place. Exactly. So, And they're going to be judged by Alil, um, as we discussed last time. Yeah. And uh, what I love is the way that the heroes, uh, at this point, they're going, OK, you never made it yourself, so we're going to take you. Yeah. We're going to make sure you get there. We're going with you. Yeah, yeah. And so they set off, uh, yeah. describing the heroes as haughty and overweening. Yes, yeah. And uh, so Logra and, and Conal are hoisted up to, they're hoiked off to, to uh, Crookham. Yes. But Me- meanwhile, Cuchulain, back of the ranch, yes, is he stayed behind showing off to the girls. He's described as doing juggling for them and juggling with apples and javelins and, and knives. Yeah, you know. And they were going, ooh, aren't you clever? Yeah. <laughs> Except for there's um, the charioteer. His charioteer, Lloyd. Lloyd. Yeah. Now, Lloyd's really interesting yeah. because he doesn't just act like a squire like mm. the others do. He's a real character in his own right. Yes. And he's watching Cahulan going, and you better get a move on. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to be going off to Kirk and go, no, no, later, I'm busy. Yeah, yeah. So, so the way he gets him to pay attention is he calls him a coward. Yes, yeah. Um, and, of course, Cahulan immediately dumps everything and goes. Yeah. Now, I find Lloyd quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in a way, he's, the way he talks to Cahulan mm. shows he's, he's not just a servant. Yeah. Or if he is, he belongs to that class of character in fairy tale called the surly servant. Yes, yeah. And now the, the, this is... This popular figure, he's often connected with other world characters. Yeah, uh, it's quite difficult to define Loic's relationship with the other world per se. Yeah, the other thing is he could be, in fairy tale, it could mm. also be an animal helper. Yeah. and he, his, he belongs to that class of characters. Exactly, and his name does mean calf. And so that kind of maybe hints at that sort of animal helper role. Yeah, yeah. It, that, it's quite interesting because, uh, you know, you've got the Glasgowan, yes. you've got characters like that. There's mm. a, a figure in, oh, Cinderella, mm. who wear a red calf axe as a psychopomp between the characters. But, yeah. you know, it, there's no proof. But mm. they just get this feeling it's, that yeah, he's a, a fairy tale character type. Yeah, it's interesting. And another world character. Mm. Well, the Ulsterman set off. 
And the first place to get to is what? Moybreg? Yeah. Now, now th- is this Breg yet? This is, it's a little bit tricky to identify. Well, if they are, it is. They're going a very long way round. Yeah. Just like Cahullan. Yeah, because the, the, the um, place that's usually referred to as Breggia or, or Brega, um is... It's, that's near Dublin. It's the northeast Midlands. It's It includes Tara and it's sort of a lot of County Meath. Well, so County you're Meath telling me North Dublin. They too are leaving... Uh, uh, Armagh. Yeah, they're leaving yeah. Armagh mm. to get to Roscommon yeah. via Dublin. That's one possible <laughs> way to look at it. Uh, in, in, even, even you know, we've got trains I know. today that are just about to do better than yeah. No, actually, no, not, we not quite, no. But um, it's possible one way of looking at it is that Breaker is usually the area associated with Tara. And as we oh, so found, Tara's getting in on the act. Exactly, just like yeah. it did in Moitura. But there is another way of looking at it, and that is that there is a Mark Bregwinner, mm-hmm. right, uh, which is the plain of oh, Bregwinner. Yeah, I know where that is. Yeah, that's around County Longford, Not Granard. far from Ada, or yeah. not far from Brelev. Exactly. Near Abbey Shrew. Yeah. And that not as, far from Granite. Yeah, as we've discovered, that's a very mythologically important part of the country that's got... Long, rather forgotten. Yeah, it's gotten overlooked, and... It's possible as well, an archaeologist friend of mine said years ago, there may be what he termed a coronation site near Granard that is on a par with Cruyff yeah, well, and that's with quite likely. I mean, so, I know there's a Norman Mott yes. in Granard, but there's also quite a lot of earlier sites. Mm. And Breleth is one of the great mythical sites. Exactly, yeah. Um, Mithers. That's Mithers she, yeah. So it seems quite likely that it once was once a good stopping place. Exactly. So that that is more sensible, if you like, yeah, as so a route. If you were going um, from uh, Armagh mm. to Ardar, yeah, <laughs> that would actually make sense. Yes. You're going slightly too far south, but yeah, you're, you're then also you're going across. Country. You're also not having to go through all the lakes of Enniskillen. Yes, or or the terrible tangled woods of Breffney. Ooh, <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> And of course, although Cúhollán starts off later than the rest of the the Ulstermen, mm-hmm. uh, and he does another one of these crazy circuits of the country, which we will map and put onto our blog for you to look at. But needless to say, of he course, gets there first. He gets there first because he's, he's Cúhollán. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So finally, finally, mm. our heroes get to Crookham. Yes. <laughs> now the description of how they arrived made up the opening story of this podcast episode yes now I chose it because it's a really lively vivid description <laughs> that's one word for it <laughs> well it was probably I think it's great it's good fun. and you you know the way Findavar sees them and yeah. Maeve says go and tell me girl what do you see and she goes oh my god I want a bit of that yeah. it's that sort of thing <laughs> but it's also the way it works is one of the main indications to me that it, it, it is I think an oral story before it's literary well the structure of it is nice because um um, as we saw at the beginning, uh, Maeve sends her daughter Findever to some kind of lookout tower. Um, but in the original language, Findever's descriptions are these, again, sort of alliterative streams. They're, they're not exactly poetry, but they would be very striking to uh, Alliterative lists, in a way. Yeah, just like with the description of uh, Kuroi and the Mist, you it know. It reminds me a little of the Anglo-Saxon style. Of yes. It, but without the break in between the yeah. two half lines. But uh, what you do get then is that Maeve responds to each of these descriptions and says, you know, oh, I know who that is. And mm-hmm. then she, she gives them all kinds of uh, epithets and all the rest of it. Um, but Maeve's responses, they're marked as passages of Ruskut. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, when I say they're marked, in the manuscript, it has a dot R dot, which yeah. stands for, this is a passage of Rusk poetry, which is this um, non-syllabic uh, or non-metrical um, poetry that has a lot of connective alliteration. It's very um, tight, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very dense. They're, they're very often the, the densest parts and the, the most difficult to translate, as we oh, discovered in my tour. beautiful to play with. Exactly. Once you give me what the words mean. Yes, yeah. You can play around with this. Yeah. So that almost in each line, you you take one word from yeah. the previous line and uses it to start the next one exactly. or to create the meaning of the next one. Yes. And it's most wonderfully tight. Yes. And energised. Yeah, it is. I've fallen in love with it. Yeah, yeah. And I do think, as you said, you know, that this does have um, more indications of an oral origin and I felt very strongly, particularly with a text like Moitura, that these passages made up the, the original text if you like. And poetry is um, there's one scholar described a poem as a machine for remembering itself mm-hmm. you know, that they are very good ways of encapsulating you know, quite vast meanings in very dense uh, words. So yeah, I think that this could be another indicator you know, that the, there was an oral form preceding this literary one. Mm. And uh, it seems to have been enjoyed by its listeners. Oh, it? definitely, yeah. It's very much something that has to be heard to be appreciated, yeah. I think. Yeah, though there are other indications this was a popular oral story, but mm. let's look at those later because yeah. I want to get back to the story because exactly. this is where it gets better and yeah. better. Yep. I love what Maeve does next. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Got this time, come on. Oh, yeah. Your turn. <laughs> well, once she realises what they're going to be dealing with, and particularly that they have these three heroes who are going to be landing on top of them in, these in, three hot heroes yeah in in very real terms um she instructs her household to get three large vats of cold water uh, now henderson in his it, it, innocence it implies that this was for them to drink because they must be hot after they must such be a thirsty. Journey. yeah no it's not um we have descriptions elsewhere of how cuchulain in order to get him out of one of his warp spasms, had to be dipped into three cauldrons of water yeah, in and turn. Yeah, there's another way they calmed him down too, wasn't there? Exactly. And and again, we find this elsewhere in descriptions of Cuchulain, where basically you have to show him naked ladies. And it calms him down? Yeah. Or at least of, keeps him occupied. Yeah. It stops him killing people. Exactly, yeah, which is the most important bit. And How are we going to stop Cuchulain killing everyone around? Take your clothes off, girls! Yeah, so uh, again, 150 women of the household uh, are sent out... Bare naked, you know. I, th- I think that Henderson uses the term déshabillé. Yeah, well, he is... tries to suggest that it's bare-breasted. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that. I it's don't think stark so. Naked. Yeah, the term is formnacht, which means you know, all bare all over, basically. Um, so yeah, stark naked women and vats of cold, cold baths to dip them in, and that <laughs> should keep them under control for a little bit. Do you think that this is a custom of the period, or do you think it's like the from the ninth century? Go oh, back in the those old days they must have done this i think that there's possibly a little bit of both i mean in terms of one of the tests that's going to happen at kruken as we'll see i think is something that got sort of left behind as a custom and it does have to do with the role of women which does change over time as we know yeah. um, well it, it gets you know if it gets because basically when he arrives mm. uh Findvar goes up oh, 
Okay. Um, now I'll uh, hang out with the uh, yes. The, 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 the women are divided in three and fifty given to each of the heroes to take into their separate little houses. But uh, it's not that they're given by the men. No, they organise themselves. Yes, yeah. It seems is... to be their idea. Yeah, and there's no suggestion mm. that they're pushed into this by the men. No, they're not given. No, it's they n- go exactly. It's it's not <coughs> like that sort of transfer of property or or using the facilities. We have suggested before that this may be a part of common hospitality, that part of uh, hospitality that's offered by a household is a sexual hospitality, and that this comes from the women, but it's within their gift. It's not, again, it's not that sort of... Um, no, they may choose to give exactly, this gift, yeah, but they can but also they, choose they can to withhold choose not it. To. Exactly. And they often do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, there is a very different sense of mm. sexual mores in yes, these stories. absolutely, yeah. And now, what I was trying to get at, if you, this is a ninth century text, mm. um, is there any evidence that this was common in the ninth century? Or are they trying to say, well, it would have been back in the old days when life was more fun? Yeah, I don't think, in, in terms of the other sources that we have, like the legal and status sources, there isn't much indication of this. I think it's, it's something that we see in the literature and in the stories. Um, but there's sometimes the way that it appears in the literature seems to be a hangover from an earlier time mm-hmm. that the writers of the 8th and ninth century didn't really, either didn't understand or it was no longer relevant to them or mm. they thought it was impossible that, that women could be like this. You know, so I think that if it was ever a, a really a custom, it would have died out by the time of our text. Oh, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I, I think... You're right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So but it's, it's a little bit of both. It's hard to say. It's very hard yeah. to say, but it's fun to conjecture. It is. Yes, absolutely. And of course, the other thing is, I think, quite interesting here is the comparison between Crookan and Dunrudrigger. Yeah, exactly. That we get another physical description of the house. Crookan mm. has seven circles and seven compartments. Yes. It has bronze frontings and carvings of red yew yeah. and stripes of bronze in the arching of the house and uh, 12 windows with glass in the opening. Mm-hmm. And a dais for Eileen and Maeve in the centre of the house with silver frontings and stripes of bronze. Yes. Yeah, I had to read that bit because I haven't got can't hold all that in my head. Yeah. But whereas Dan Rutherger, mm. to compare, had nine compartments mm. instead of seven, uh, all the same frontings of bronze, yeah. and again this dais yes, for, uh, the for the for most important concover, mm. and also glass windows. So yes. they're not lumped. So they're very, very similar. They are, yeah. Although... Interestingly, Brickrew has made his bigger, probably deliberately, you know, in order to uh, have the most audacious oh, yes. of, his of the lot. is the size that um, um, Fergus Kelly said yeah. would be of a king's exactly. s- uh, status. Yes, yeah. Whereas, in fact, the seven mm. of Aelila May mm. is only the eight, approximately the eight of a noble's yeah. house, yeah. according to Fergus Kelly. Yeah, which is, so, again, curious as this kind of... Saying the Kruchen isn't as important as everyone. Oh, well, it's implied here, so yeah, <laughs> it's quite possible. Now, there's one particular uh, feature of both houses mm. which interests me. Um, in Kruchen, it mentions that there's a silver wand mm. by Eilil's chair, yeah, uh, or dais, and it says that it's so great this silver wand that it would reach the mid hips of the house, mm. and he uses it, it said, to check the inmates. <laughs> in other words, to stop them talking. Yeah. Now. Interestingly enough, um, Concova has a, a silver scepter, which yes. is described as exactly the same thing. Mm. He uses this to call the house to order mm. and bangs it against the bronze pillar of the couch. Yes, yeah. 
Um, and I know there's another in one of the podcast episodes mm. we did recently. We had a, a, a similar yes one, but for the life of me, I can't remember. I know, which. <laughs> I know it's very frustrating. But these turn up. Yes, yeah. And what they remind me of most of all is the apple branch that Cormac used, mm. that uh, Mananan brought to Cormac mm. in the story of Cormac's cup. Mm. And again, it was there this this branch which was with silver. What was it? Golden apples yeah. and silver leaves. Yeah. But it was shaken to mm. bring the house to order. Yeah. To bring peace, to shut people up. Yes. Yeah. Now this sounds like something which is based on uh, an artifact that was actually used, or an object that was used. Yes, either that or what you have in Cormac, but because Cormac is the the ideal king, so he has the ideal. He has the ideal uh, branch or scepter, and that the ones that are described here as being with alil and cover and so on are almost like representations of that. You know, so you yeah. either have something which you know is a symbol of that original magical branch that you hold up and people shut up, or else it's a big stick that you. Yeah. Hit people uh, with when they get out of line. Authority of trees. Yeah, it's a is, scepter of some sort. It is. Yes. Yeah. Um, but as for what what it represents, you know, we yeah. could speculate on that. I mean, we could talk about this for ages. Exactly. We really must talk about this another time yeah. because it strikes me just as we're in the same way that the Egyptians had the crock and flail. Yes. And both of those were symbols of their original authority over the fertility over of the land. Agriculture. Yeah. Over agriculture. Here we have a scepter mm. which remembers the authority of trees, the sacred trees, yes. which is or the other world. World. Yeah, the other authority world trees, of yeah. the Isle of uh, Apples. Yes, yeah. Does Nera also remember we talked about in Corpse Caring for Beginners? Yes. Remember Nera's branch? Exactly, that he brought back a flowering branch from the other world and brought it into the winter of this world to demonstrate that he had been there and that he his had story the authority of the other world. True, yeah. So there, there is a way in which, yes, the, the flowering branch and particularly the sort of out of season branch. Uh, can yeah, often the magical apple branch. Yes, it can often sort of stand for evidence of a journey into the other world or the authority of the other mm. world. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I, I have no idea what all this means, but mm. it just is really interesting. It is. Yeah. Maybe we'll have time to come back to it. Yeah. Right. Well, look. Let's get back to the story because I really like the next bit. Mm-hmm. There's they they turn this whole crowd turn yeah. up on their doorstep. Yeah. Heroes, uh, the king of Ulster, the whole the yeah the whole Ulster, the whole household, the whole all the revenue. Yeah. And they all turn up and they explain. Yeah. That Ailil, we want you to judge these heroes of ours and tell us who's the best of them. Yes. And Ailil just goes, "You really hate me, don't you? <laughs> you, you? You know, oh for goodness' sake." Yeah. <laughs> You must hate me. Yeah. And Chenica explains mm. that they really need their heroes yeah. back and they're useless at the moment. Yeah. And uh, I know in the end he says, oh, look, all right, look, I'll give it three days. Yes. Yeah. Three days and three nights. And then uh, all of the rest of the Ulstermen go, OK, well, that, that should do. That won't damage friendship. But then they all bugger off and leave poor Elil and, and Maeve having to deal with these three obstreperous heroes yeah, in their three separate houses. in a real dangerous situation yeah. because yeah. if they get this wrong, mm. they're going to have not only uh, three obstreperous heroes yeah. on their hands, but probably the whole of Ulster exactly. on their back doorstep. Yeah, it, it could start a war. This is the kind of delicate diplomacy that you really don't want to find yourself in. But even if they judge rightly, um, it's quite possible that the other two heroes will then you know, wreak revenge. So, yeah, it really is... They're in a mess. A rock and a hard yeah. place, yeah. 
Yeah. And what they do, of course, is once the heroes are trapped in or trapped, or, or no, safely tucked up <laughs> with fifty women each, yeah, including the daughters of the house, mm. into their own house. Now, I presume the girls have gone by the time the next bit happens. Yes, I presume that they they did their bit of hospitality uh, when the heroes arrived, and then the, the heroes are sort of left to to catch some shut eye. Because certainly, once Maeve and Eilil's plan is put mm. into uh, into force or yeah. put into effect, mm. I presume the heroes are on their own. It would seem so. It would seem so. And what they do is to let loose from the cave of Crookan these wonderful, strange, otherworld cats. Yes. Dragon cats, we call them. Well, we think of them as dragons because, for one thing, they come out of caves very often. They do test. They're they're dangerous creatures. They're difficult to approach. Yeah. And they guard treasure. They do, yeah. Uh, As we found before with the story of the Labby Rock in Moitura, there's supposed to be a black cat guarding treasure there. supposed to be one in in the voyage of Moildon where they come across a cat that's guarding a room full of treasure. And we've always felt that in the Irish stories Mm. that there are no dragons to speak. There are occasional worms every yeah. now and then. Yeah, serpents, oddly yes. enough. Yeah, but um, no dragons. No, and they, they their role seems to be taken over by cats. Yep, and these are three of those kinds of otherworld beasties. So don't think nice, sweet little kittens. God no, <laughs> <laughs> and certainly the heroes don't, because into each of their houses comes one of these monstrous otherworld beasts, and um, for Loigra and Cunnel, they. <laughs> up in the rafters. Yes, and they basically sleep up in the rafters, not daring to go anywhere near the cats, and the cats are just there, sort of munching away on their food yeah. and, you know... Well, Cullen at least attempts to damage one of the cats. He it, does. He, he tries to, when it goes for food, yeah. he's not putting out with it, yeah. so he gives it a, a, a hit or two. Yes. But he still just has to watch all night. Well, yeah, because he, although he has had enough courage to, to try and uh, whack one Thump of them with, with his sword, it doesn't make any difference at all. The cat so, just goes on munching the food. Exactly. And he's like he does munch him. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's interesting, these cats. I, I, I've always been... The, I mean, the cave of um, Oweny Cat, the yes. cave of the cats, it's yeah. known as, is not far from the main centre of, of Rathra. Yeah, exactly. And it's we've talked about it before. We it's have. a really interesting underground, underground cave. Mm. It does exist. Mm. And although it's partly collapsed nowadays, yeah. there's still an area that you can get underground, which mm. is part dressed stone, mm. part souterrain and part natural cave. Mm. And it is very strange. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can take a virtual tour of it. Oh yes, on the uh, on uh, the Crook and I Heritage Centre yeah. website, and we'll remark the. the mm. But it is an interesting place. But it certainly wouldn't be big enough for cats and Morrigan and people like that to come out of, and pigs. And... Well, you know, we're talking about the other world here, so yeah. you know, no, I'm size joking. doesn't matter in that way. <laughs> I am joking. It's a bit like the TARDIS. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> much bigger on the inside than the outside. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very strange place. Mm. It certainly was was known as one of the um, hellmouth hellmouths of Ireland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there we are. It's a Tulse, not Sunnydale. No, thankfully. Well, after all that, they go back the next morning, and Cullen goes, "I won! Yes. I bashed a cat." Yes, <laughs> you didn't even do that. You sat in the rafters and. Ignored them. Well, but this, according to the other two, this is, still isn't good enough because they say that as heroes, their job is to fight men and not beasts. <laughs> and so this still doesn't count and as it a hero's test. Other, other world. 
They another, were other world animals exactly. as well. Yeah, so once again, Cuchulain as another world character is up against other other world forces. Right. So, so once again, they're going, nope, that not won't fair. work. No That's good. not fair. No good. Think of something else. Yeah. Well, at this point, Idil has just had enough, hasn't <laughs> yeah. he? He's got, he's got his head in his hands. He's yeah. going, everyone hates me. He actually goes off and has a sulk in his room. He goes back into his private chamber and leans against the wall. <laughs> and it says that he hadn't managed to sleep for three three days for three nights and hasn't eaten anything well, Maeve knows what to do about that one exactly and what yeah. she does is she goes in and says you're a coward yeah. get up and do something yeah. but the interesting thing is she says look that's an easy solution mm. the solution mm. it's obvious that the she tells him that the, the three heroes are as different as chalk from cheese exactly well, that's not the word she yes. uses she prefers them, she, um, in fact she she compares them to different sorts of metals yeah it's, it's almost our bronze silver and gold medals um, although instead of silver we have this Finn River which is this uh, white bronze um, but she does say that they are as different as bronze and Finn River and gold yeah, she says you're useless I know what to do yeah. and she gets with it. Exactly. So they were sent to be tested by Ailil and mm. he's given up. Mm. And as usual, Maeve immediately jumps into the fray yes. and she goes, you can't do it, but I can. Yes. But her solution is a bit more uh, devious. It's typical Maeve. She it cheats. Yeah. For one thing, she's already decided who she thinks is the best. But also, yeah, she's just... But she's going she's gonna to find a way of passing the buck. Exactly, as they all do. It's not a real solution. She just goes, yeah. finds a way of getting, getting them out rid of, of her them. hair yeah. and getting them back to someone else. Yeah. So what she does is she um, gets three wonderful cups. Yes. And the first one she sends for is like always first, yeah. Yeah, and she gives him this wonderful cup. Mm-hmm. And this is a bronze cup, and uh, it has. I'm not sure what kind of inlay it has. It has a bird chased in white metal on the bottom. There we go. So it's bronze. I don't think the bird has got white metal on its bottom. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly Logra hasn't got white metal on its bottom. Unless he's got very strange underpants. But yes, uh, she gives him the bronze cup, with, which has bits of Finn River sort of direct decorations in it. And then she sends for Logra mm. and she said, look, you're the winner, you get a cup. Yeah, that's Logra's cup. So then Connell gets... Oh, sorry, did yeah, I say... Yeah, so she sends for Connell. Yeah. And, and she says, look, you get a cup? Yes. You've won? She tells each of them that they've she won. She does, yeah. yeah. Once again, this is very much reminiscent of Brick Ruse bigging them up right at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so Connell gets the silver medal or the Finn River um, medal, which is, again, a Finn River cup which has gold ornamentation. It has a it. bird chasing the bottom on gold. Yes. Gold. Yes. <laughs> I love this chase on the bottom. Of I know, yeah. But anyway, it's just engraved. It's got a yeah. bird of gold engraved on the base. Exactly. And uh, but then she sends for Kahula, of course, who won't come. No, he's being an obstreperous bastard again. He yeah, really he's is so, so busy playing chess yeah. with Loig that yeah. when she sends for him, she says, you know, she sends a herald. Yeah. And he tells him to get lost. Yeah. And when the herald says, "No, Maeve wants to you now," yeah. he says, "Stuff that for a game of marbles," and throws the chessman so yes. hard at the herald that he kills him. <laughs> He really, he throws such tantrums, does Kukulun. Oh, he's such a brat! I know. But because he's gone and killed the Herald, Maeve has to go to him herself and convince him that she really does want to see him and it really will be in his best interest. Yeah, and, and she has course. to put her arms around him in order to convince him of this. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So her, they deserve each other, those uh, two. Yeah. But her gift to, to him, then, is a gold cup. Um, and this time the bird has eyes made out of dragonstone. Oh, well, well, what is dragonstone, do you think? Um, well, dragonstone is one of these uh, terms that in an 
Irish context is pretty much entirely literary. They would have come across descriptions of Dragonstone in classical sources. And in the classical sources, it seems that they're referring to red diamond, which is a very, very rare form of diamond, something okay. really beyond uh. price. But um, whereas in the Irish stories, when you hear about carbuncles, they they were referring to garnet and they made their own kind of cheap yeah, versions yeah. by using red enamel to imitate carbuncles. And, and imitate yet they're often garnet. called carbuncles, yes. even though they're, garnet, well, they're not garnet. Exactly, they're exactly. Yeah. So they, they did have, if you like, a, a, a cheap, knockoff version or you know an imitation carbuncle but it doesn't seem that there was imitation dragonstone i think that it's a purely kind of literary concept in ireland you know it says it's just something mythical exactly yes something that's so fantastic a cup that it had something (gasps) which doesn't even exist (laughs) yeah we've only heard of in story exactly it's like it has uh, you know he rode home on a unicorn yes yes Cullen is not right over a unicorn. No, thankfully. <laughs> well, that should do it. Yes. You know, at that point, she's the idea is she sends them back home, and mm. that's that's the problem. Yes. They're, they're let 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 uh, Kunkaba sort it out. Now. Yeah. Not but she, she does tell each of them, look, this is the cup of the champion's portion, but don't tell anyone. Don't tell the others. Yeah. Now, what I find out is that should do it. That in storyteller's mm. term, they now need to go back to to Arwen uh, Mac. Yes. But they don't. Mm. It's just this third sort of third test that yes. she gives. And she says, I will keep them one more night. Yes, yeah. Now, this may be because she wants to keep them one more night. Yes. Or you were suggesting that there is actually a third test. Yeah. And that it, the cups represents the second test. Exactly. The first test was the cats and the second was the cups. And yes, she they're due to stay another night. And it's on that third night that, again, 50 women are sent to each of the heroes, uh, led by a daughter of the house, that to Cúchulain's house she sends Findever, who's clearly mm-hmm. the sort of the favourite daughter. And Maeve also goes there herself. The third test is actually what happens overnight in each of these houses mm-hmm. between the heroes and the daughters of the houses, that it is actually a sexual test. Yeah. But the some tellers of the story don't necessarily pick up on that. Mm-hmm. And so they have to create another test for them afterwards because they say, well, you know, we've got two tests, but there should be three. Where's the third test? So I know it sounds a bit like cricket matches, but um, I think that either the they didn't understand that by sending the women into the houses that there was actually a sexual test happening or that they didn't think that, that was sufficient or, or proper or proper. Yeah. So that, that somehow that got lost and therefore we find extra tests are going to get put in here mm. afterwards. The other thing that I was going to refer to, I found it interesting that at this point mm. it's not only the maidens are tested, but it's the horses. Yes. Yeah. That um, there's a choice of food offered to the horses yes. that is connected with this sexual test. Yeah. And again, Conal and Logra yeah. choose oats for their horses. Yes. Whereas Cucullan chooses barley. Yes. So which is a higher quality. Yeah. Yeah. Grain. So again, there's this sort of separation out between the the mm. other two and Cucullan, and that Cucullan somehow marks a superiority mm. of himself and of his horses. Yeah, I just uh, the reason I mentioned the mm. horses is because once again the description at mm. the beginning before they even describe the heroes. Yes. Their horses are described yeah. in equally over the top mm. uh 
or almost sensual. I mean, well, yeah. very sensual. The horses are described in an e equally sensual way. Yes. And here, before the sexual test, mm. is the horses are mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Not that I'm suggesting anything odd, but it's no, just that but sheer the, love of the whole beauty of the horses. Exactly. And that in this tale, the, the horses have almost as important a role. You know, they're there at sort of every important juncture in the story involves the horses. So. And obviously the audience wanted to hear about the horses as much as they wanted yeah. to hear about the heroes. Yeah. Well, let's have a look at this sort of inserted story, this yes. this uh, substitute third test. Yes. The first bit is really interesting because it begins with a sort of Crookan community sports day. Yes. <laughs> Where all of the the youngsters are out, they're running around, they're jumping over things and climbing trees and what have you. Testing each other in a perfectly normal sort exactly, of way. Exactly, yeah. And we've talked before about the various, you know, oinooks and gatherings and games and, and so this on. This was normal. Yes, yes. But of course, we have to have the, the three heroes sort of trying to out-compete each other. And the way that they do it is with this uh, term of the wheel feet. Mm -hmm. Now, this was... I find this quite hard to visualise. It's a curious one. It's a bit like a game of frisbee, really. With a big wooden frisbee. Yes, exactly. The so size of a cartwheel. That's it. Imagine a giant frisbee. And it seems to be taking place indoors. It does, yeah, because um, it's to do with the Connell and Loigra. They throw the, the wheel up into the air and it gets up nearly to as high as the roof and then comes back down again. Yeah. So Again, we are talking about what sounds like a... a a roundhouse. Yes, exactly. That it, it, it's a got a high point at the centre. Mm. Exactly. So, and they talk about the roof tree very often. So, Loiger and Connell, of course, you know, throw, fling the wheel up into the air, and it nearly gets to the top. And uh, but what's nice is that the other lads kind of jeer that they didn't get the 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 wheel all the way up to the roof. But the Connell and Loiger think that instead of jeering, that they're actually applauding them. So they think, oh, I've done really well. You know, listen listen to that roaring applause, you know, and they, they don't get that they're being mocked. Laughed at, yeah. yeah. So, Is that all they can do? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. of course, then, Cúhullan has to outdo the others. And he, when he flings the wheel out, it, it breaks through the top of the roof and, you know, gets buried in several feet into the ground where it lands outside. And, you know, as usual, he's causing destruction to, to property. Um, and But the other lads all love this. They think that this is, you know... This is definitely the best thing that they've ever heard. Yeah, and oddly enough, Cahulan then interprets that as jeering. Yeah, yeah. And he's really upset. Yeah. He, he won't have it that they're praising him. Yeah. Now, it's odd because Cahulan loves praise. Yeah. And it's almost a sort of Asperger's sort of, yeah. you know, word. he doesn't get it. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's not what you'd expect in a, in a piece design really to extol the hero yeah it's exactly. why i'm not quite sure where there's this emphasis on they they're reacting wrong yeah yeah they're each but they each mistake yeah really. particularly cool yes yeah so uh, that is a very interesting again an interesting perspective yeah, i don't know I'm not what to make of it but it yeah. is odd well i i do think we suggested before that you know this isn't just a purely laudatory tale that it does have its tongue in its cheek it does think that the heroes are quite overblown you mm. know but of course overweening and haughty exactly yeah but you know Cúhullan who thinks that his uh, prowess has been doubted he then goes and collects sewing needles from all the women of the house and he sort of seems to do this juggling trick with them where he throws them up into the air and then throws them so that each needle passes through the eye of another needle and uh, this somehow demonstrates his his 
uh, dexterity and superiority and what have you, you know. With a load of bone needles. Yes, exactly. So, again, it is rather over the top. Well, look, let's look at the actual... Can we get to the actual story that's been inserted? Yes, and that really is an insert, because although we've just suggested that this business with wheel feet, it, it in this telling of the tale, it feels like that's a replacement for the forgotten or misunderstood sexual test. Mm-hmm. But in the uh, Codex Fossianus, which is the manuscript version I've managed to look at, it leaves out the business with the cats, interestingly. Right. So it doesn't have the test with the cats, but what it has are the cups, it has the wheel feet, and it has the sexual test. Yeah. So again, it has three tests, and those are the three. Um, but, but in every version, the next story really doesn't fit. Exactly, yeah. Where it's about to go now, after this community sports yeah, day. Because Maeve says, right, you know, I want to send you to, uh, who is it, my foster father. Yes. Whose name is Urkel. Uh, that's Heracles to you, to you and me. <laughs> so in other words, we're back into, this is definitely an insert. Yeah, it's like, uh, you've got a rather like in the Children of Tur- yeah. Turin. You've got to have this, uh, you know, our heroes are better than Hercules. Exactly, yeah. So let's send Cahulan up against Hercules in some sort of weird chop trumps yeah, game. Yeah. <laughs> and he's bound to win. Exactly, yes. So they all go off to see Urkel yes. and her stepmother, whose it's name is Garmna. Yeah. So, which again, I don't know whether these appear as a pair anywhere else in the literature. You know, it does. It feels not just kind of out of order, but it does feel very much like a literary insert. Partly because of this uh, classical overtone, you can imagine the, the sort of the, the scholarly writer. But it's still it a problem because mm. we still haven't got to the actual inserted story. Yeah, yeah. Because then when they get to Urkel, yeah, he sends them somewhere else exactly. as well to the real inserted story, yes. which is guess where we go to? We're all the way down to Kerry again. Yeah, we're back to Kuroi. Exactly. Now, it's not explicit, I have to say, within the story that that's where they go. But um, it seems to fit more with the Kuroi story. Yeah, we're getting an out of place exactly. other world story yes. set here. Just like the, the ones we had Lost in the Mist and the other yes. one earlier on. Yeah. So it's like, okay, we want another prefiguring of the real story, yes. which is the Kuroi. Yes. And it's tucked in here. Yes. And this is miss- completely missing from your uh, Completely mis- missing from the Codex. And I, I imagine... N- doesn't appear in all of the other manuscript uh, variations which Henderson has used. Well, it's a good story. It is a good one, yes. Right, so Urkel and Garmla don't test the heroes themselves straight off. They send them <laughs> past the book once again, but this time they send them off to a character called Savara. Now, he's more interesting, I think. I think so, and this is where I think we have, if you like, another genuine story that's been brought in as a literary device, but because it was a good story. Mm-hmm. That Savara... Possibly even a story of Cahullan. Yes, I think so. And this is where I think it's related to the Kuroi set of mm-hmm. stories. Um, because Savara sends the heroes off in turn once again to go and fight these dark spirits, um, which are, Henderson translates sometimes as horrors, which is the Uatha. Now, we talked about Uatha before as these kind of horror spirits. They're related. Spectres? Yes, yeah. And related to some elements of the Morrigan. 
Um, but they're also called the Genesee Glynna, which are these kind of shrieking spirits of the glen. Sort of banshees? Yeah, this is when we talked before about the sort of the, the, that shrieking horror. These are the characters that we're meeting here. And the Genesee can often send someone into madness, into a bulla, like uh, we get with Swift Magelt, with uh, Mad So it's sending them to fight madness? Yeah, yeah, in the valleys. And you do get a clutch of these stories about Genesee Glynna um, down in the Schlievmesh Mountains really in Really only Kerry. from there, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as to say only from there, but there is definitely a cluster of them down mm. there. And um, one of the examples of that is around Anaskol, which is, uh, it means the, um, either the ford or the meadow, I'm not sure which it is, of the phantom, Skoll. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of uh, areas around there uh, where the place names are related to Cúchulán. I think that there's maybe a dolmen, there's some kind of lek anyway, some kind of big stone that's known as Cúchulán's bed mm-hmm. uh, up near Anaskol. And this is sort of a few valleys over, if you like, from where Kuroi's uh, place is. So, you know, it's very much in that area. It's very much of the type of story we so get with So there's already a story of Cahullam fighting phantoms down yes, there. Yes, exactly. So there's already an extant story of Cahullam fighting phantoms. Yes. So there's only really one step to go to have all our heroes fighting exactly. phantoms. Exactly, yes. So what happens? Well, they each go in turn, and as you might expect, Loigra kind of runs away immediately, <coughs> leaving all of his gear behind. Um, Connell goes again. Now, Connell does a little bit better this time. Uh, he manages to come out with his sword, but manages just to leave the rest of his gear behind. Yeah. Oh, uh, and they're, they're tearing their clothes to pieces. Yeah, they? exactly. The, these Genesee Glynna, uh, these sort of very much feminine spirits, are they're they're ripping them to shreds, really. Um, and they do the same to Cúchulán. They practically leave their clothes behind. Yes, exactly. <laughs> let's not let's not beat about the bush. Yes. <laughs> the heroes have their clothes ripped off. Them. Yes. Yeah. But uh, at least Conal gets away with his sword. sword yes. <laughs> oh, God, make what you like of that one. Exactly. Exactly. Now. At first, Cuchulain doesn't do so well either. You know, he also gets his clothes ripped to shreds and uh, he's at the point of giving up. But again, Loig taunts him. You know, he says, you know, who are you to give up against such things what, as these? What, you can't beat these? Yeah, these Fuck are only phantoms. You know, what are you, what are you afraid of, you silly boy? Um, he calls him a coward. Yes, yes. So once again, we've got Loig taunting Cúchulain into um, Finding into that fighting. little extra bit of strength. Yes. This is what I mean. It's like he's a helper, an yes. world helper. Yeah, yeah. And once again, it's to fight other world beings. Yeah. Um, so Cúchulain, as you might expect, eventually he manages to come back and bring the other two heroes' gear with him. Um, but that isn't quite the end of the story. No, we have to sort of step back <laughs> yes. into the previous nest of exactly. stories. Yeah, yes. In the previous shell, we're back to Urkel again. Yes. Because the problem is, being Urkel, being Hercules, we yes. still haven't quite got to this bit where uh, Colin beats Hercules! Yes. <laughs> so they have to fight. Exactly, yeah. But it's being inevitable. it's the, the whole story, you've got to let the other two have a go first. Yes, naturally. And what's interesting here, the horses fight as well. Yeah, and it's very much, it's, it's quite clear 
here that the the defeat is in terms of Urkel's horse killing first Connell's and then Lyger's horse. Oh, Lyger's and Connell. Sorry, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, let's get the yeah, order right. So what's the order? Yeah, yeah. But interestingly enough, it's this time. Not only does Cahullan's horses kill Urkel's horses, yes. but um, Connell doesn't kill Urkel. Yeah, but he, he it's worse. Yeah, he takes him back. In a sort of Roman triumph, he yeah. ties him to his chariot yeah. and brings him back. Yes, so he, he shows that he's defeated him, but doesn't even have to kill him to defeat him. Oh, it's worse than that. Yeah, he bundles he him up. He dishonours him. Yeah. He's dishonoured Hercules. Yes. Yeah. And then there's that other bit about, um, oh, who is it? Savra's daughter, isn't yes. it? Yes, yes. That Savra um, is said to have a daughter called Buin. And now Buin kind of means, like, spoils of war or a, a trophy or she's not even a real person yeah. or a gift and she of course falls madly in love with Cuchulain and uh, tries to follow him home but uh, in trying to make some sort of leap to follow the chariot she falls and bashes her head in and um, and dies of course and it does sort of say and this is where we have uh, Buin's grave but the location's not known no is we can't identify it so it's a sort of fake it feels like yeah. a sort of a, a made-up Dinhenicus. Yes. Just to big up Colin again. Yes, but also because uh, there is Dinhenicus involved with one of the other heroes in their journey home. Uh, with their well, that's charioteer. true. We, we haven't actually talked about what happens yes. to the other two when yeah. they go home. Yeah, because of course Moigra heads off first, as you might imagine. Yeah. This time he's lost his horse. Yes. He's still got his charioteer, though. Yes, yes, exactly. He goes back to Evan, yeah, yeah. via Asero. He goes back via Donegal. Yeah, which is, again, a little Way bit of a circuitous route. Yes. And Colonel, he says the opposite. He goes right across and ends up close to here. Yes, in South Leitrim. And this is where we get... Drumsnar! Yes. Whoever wants to end up in Drumsnar? I know, I know. Um, it's The story is, again, that uh, his charioteer... Um, who they call Rathen, has undergone fatal injury, essentially, and um, dies at a place that's then known as Snob. Yeah, you're supposed Rathen. to be drowned in the river. Yes, uh, and the river there being the Shannon, of course, at, uh, at Snob Rathen, which has been identified as Drumsnar. Drumsnar. So, which is just south of uh, Carrick and Shannon. Um, and yeah, very close to where we are here. So that's a nice little bit Down of the road. Din Henicus. So, but what the point is that they both go off in opposite directions. Exactly. Yes. Leaving Cahillan to come home with the spoils of battle. Yes. Mind you, he takes his time this time. Oh, yeah. There's just one thing before we move on to the mm -hmm. end of the story is that the, I'm really interested in Savra. His name seems interesting. I mean, are there any in interesting linguistic pod shards we can get from this story strata? Um, just I, a little one? Yes, I think there might be just a little fragment. Um, um, and yeah, in his name, Savara. Now, it seems to include the element Sav of summer. And there is a term, Savara. That's why I was interested. Yeah. Because it's a bit like Samhain. It's, it's one yeah. of those season names. Exactly, yeah. But Savara seems to be a term uh, which relates to the summer food rent that uh, a vassal would pay to their lord. That, you know, in, in the client agreement when you mm -hmm. are a tenant on the land that during the summer there's appropriate foodstuffs 
that mm. you give to the owner of the land as part of your rent. You're and that's, paying a smaller bound. Yeah, so that's the summer food rent uh, is termed savara. So basically his name means the price of a meal. Yes, <laughs> yeah, uh, which is, uh, I think, relates back to uh, when they met the, the shade in the mists right at the beginning of this because uh, when the shade approaches the charioteers, what he demands is reparation because they've let their horses graze on the meadow. Yeah, they've damaged the meadow, Yeah, which should have been cut for hay. Yes, yeah. and so he needs payment for that loss of, of uh, the yeah. meadow. And here we have someone who represents that kind of, you know, summertime food. Um, but again, it might also have that sense of things that need to be done at the right time of year. Yeah, in you other know. words, something's been done at the wrong time of year. Yeah, yeah. Like summer ploughing or yes. winter activity in summertime. Yes, exactly. Monster is the other world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and again, the Savara character is, I don't know, maybe another reflection of Kuroi, certainly a similar character. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. I think he is one of these hidden manifestations, yes. these hidden avatars of yeah. Kuroi. Because yeah. I think he's everywhere exactly, yeah. in this he, story. Yeah. He's always in disguise, and we don't know how many his disguises are. Yeah, he seems to be, this story, he's testing people all the way through. Right from the beginning, yeah. Now, uh, the other thing I wanted to say before we reach the final end of the story, <laughs> when they actually get back to Wunmaka, yeah, I think the way this story latches into this tale, mm. it shows, is a clue to the way the, the tale's journey moves from oral to, to literary. literary. Yeah. I mean, for much of the tale, you can feel its narrative structure. Yes. And in fact, we're, we're, we're trying to work against it now, because all mm. I want to do is get to the end of the story yes. and go all about what happens. Yeah. But for most of the way through, it's a rollicking story that would have held the attention of the audience yes. throughout. Yes. I mean, you know, just imagine when you get to the bits about the, the cups and uh, yes. there's Maeve going, look, you're the best. Yes. And the audience are going, ha wait a minute. Yeah. Don't tell anyone. Yeah. Um, and, but what's interesting is that, that an audience long ago would have coped with far, far more description. Exactly. Yeah. Than an audience would put up with today exactly and that's where again a lot of the sort of the poetic or alliterative sequences uh, which can feel like they drag on a bit s- you know that they would have been central to a, a listening audience well i suppose yes as if you think about it nowadays people are used to television they're used mm. to having all the images provided for them yes yeah and if you haven't got and have never had that experience mm. in film or television mm. you would really have enjoyed these full full-bodied descriptions to help you visualise. Exactly. So it's a very different way of looking at things. Yes, it certainly is. And as we said, this sort of structure where episodes seem to appear in in the wrong order, if you like, in some versions, where I see it as very literary to have these digressions and nested stories and you know bringing in a related tale because it's another good one i see that as very much a, an act of literary construction deliberate literary construction i think you'd be more likely as a storyteller to tell them separately yes to tell these things oh if you want another story yes. you know shinsuke Lello, if exactly the story of colin i know another one yes you, yeah. but you'd never interrupt the story exactly in quite the way we're interrupting it now yes <laughs> Shall we get to the end of the story? Let's get to the end of this part of the story. Then they finally, one way and another, they get back to, to, to Evermaka. But Loigra gets there first this time. Oh yeah, and he's got a tale to tell. Yes. He arrives in a terrible state. Yes. He's lost everything. Yeah. He's been to Donegal, for goodness sake. <laughs> and now he's finally limped back down. And he goes, oh, I'm at the most appalling time. And everybody's dead. I'm the only one who survived. Yep. Woe is me. <laughs> 
the great heroes, except for me, are dead. <laughs> and I have survived. Yes. Yeah, well, that's fine. And mm. uh, he tells us pitiful story yes. of how Cahoolan and, and Conal have been killed by yeah. these awful shades. Yeah. And that's fine till, until they, turns up. they show up and prove him wrong. And what's more, Cahoolan turns up with all their gear. Yes, yeah. And Hercules uh, tied up on the back of his chariot. So it's unclear whether um, Loigra has made, if you like, a genuine mistake or whether he's sort of tried to take an opportunity to big himself up. But certainly... Both, I think. Yeah. And he's the oldest one and they always make those mistakes. Exactly, exactly. In but, story. But um, in, in this uh, telling, Calford has a real go at Loigra for having lied and mm-hmm. all the rest, that this is, you know, a great offence and he ought to be ashamed of himself and so he on. He tells him off in poetry, really which really does. makes it bad. Exactly. That turns it into, rather than just someone's opinion that this was a bad it thing to do. It into a true telling. It does, yeah. Because yeah. if it's in poetry, it's the truth. Yeah, except that when Henderson's wonderful translation, oh I have to say that there's a couple of lines in this bit which yeah. are, are candidates for the worst line of poetry I've ever come across. Exactly. You translate one line as, Cahullan with Urkel has coped. Yes. <laughs> and there's another wonderful line which he inter- tries to get the alliteration, which yeah. comes out as, Old Wood takes fire, he strikes his ire. <sighs> Oh my goodness! Yeah, so we'll we'll probably pick out a few of our favourite uh, in Big Bunny ears. But it's a good favourite line. It's a bo- of good piece of poetry. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, let's get to the dinouement. Exactly. Yeah. And this really is wonderfully cinematic exactly. because they've all arrived back at uh, Evan. Yes. And a great feast is held in their honour. Yes. And and can uh, can cover calls for his best feasting vessel. Oh yes, which is bizarrely translated as the ladder vat in this, uh, which is a very odd kind of concept. Now, it is a little bit... The the, the language is a bit obscure and uh, seems to be... It seems to be quite commonly known that Kung covers special feasting vessels. It sounds like a two, one of those two-handed buckets. Yes, that essentially when I had a look at the language, I thought it, it, it rather than a ladder vat, it's more like a vessel vat. So I had this image of the kind of the big bucket and then the little cup it's that a you bit like dip a, in. a barrel with handles, yes. a banded barrel that's big enough to hold, I think, about a gallon. Mm. They, they, they have samples of these type, I think at least one of these, yeah. of that type rather, mm. has been found in a dig in Wales. Yes. Yeah. I'll try and find a picture and of it. it makes sense in feasting terms that you have the kind of the big vat of all the booze and then that your jug for your cup bearers go along and sort of scoop out a mug for you you know or that some people have suggested that this was a kind of feat mm. where <laughs> to everybody had to, to pick, pick it, up. it up and drink from it oh, and probably got into a terrific mess yes. I don't know but they, they do you know there, yeah. there is a type of vessel of this kind that's yeah. actually been found yeah. but let's get back to this, yes. this what is for that shows the story for what it is exactly yeah. a wonderful piece of oral storytelling mm-hmm. I, I just love this bit we're back to the beginning as we said yeah. the Spencers go to serve the food and they're just about to cut the champion's portion when uh-oh, who do you give it to? Yes. And we're back to the beginning of the yes. story. The feast is set, yes. the guests are met, yeah. and we've and got what the same. next. Yeah. This time, however, rather than Brickrew stirring it up, it's a character who we did meet uh, in that first sort of introduction of who all is coming to the feast, and that's Dovthuk Beetletongue. And uh, he's the one who says, oh, well, you know, none of these three have managed to prove that they're worth the champion's portion, even though we sent them all the way to Kruachan to try and uh, get a judgment. They haven't come back with any visible token that they 
deserve the champion's portion, so let's give it to someone completely different. So beetle tongue is just another form of recruit. He's another poison tongue, exactly. So, it's, and it's interesting that here he is taking up the charge and moving it along a bit. Yeah. Well, at this point, there's a moment of silence, and then <laughs> Logra goes, well, actually, I do I've have got the cup. Yes. And they've, and they've each been given a grail. Yes. I love this bit. <laughs> You know, it's, if you've considered it, it's almost like a comedy version of the Search for the Holy Grail. Yes, it I is a bit. Hesitate before suggesting a proto version, <laughs> but it's really funny. We've already got one. Yes, well, I've Mine's got the Grail. Better than Mine's yours. better than yours. A Monty Python and Irish mythology. Oh yeah, there's a title for an article. Absolutely, but it's brilliant. You know, Logra gets that. Well, actually. I've got the cup, yes. and mine's better, so I'm the champion. Yes. And then, of course, you've got Conan who gets out his and says, yours is only made of bronze. Yes. Mine is silver, yes. or the equivalent. <laughs> I've got the cup. Yeah. I win. Yeah. And then, of course, Conan looks at them pityingly yes. and brings out his large golden cup. Yeah. With, with the, the dragon's eye, yeah. dragon sewn eyes yeah. of the bird. And he goes, you think so, lads? Yeah. But once again... It can't be. They can't accept it. And this time, what they say is that no one would have given away a cup that good. You bought it. You know, <laughs> with all your riches and your treasures, you went off and you bribed your way into getting that. So once again, they regard him as privileged. Yes, yeah. You know, what was his other world mates yeah. and his wealth and so forth. And he is privileged. Yeah, and he's sort of taken over the story, hasn't he? Yeah. I mean, they've got a point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I keep feeling he's, kind of acting like a folktale hero anyway yes you know and the more we look at this story the more traditional folktale elements there are in it yeah yeah you know i mean you you we talked about the structure mm. of the story yes and how there there are if you like there's two ways to tell it there's a sort of an oral linear way of telling it and then there's the literary way which has these prefigurings and these digressions and these roundabout routes so you can see an oral story behind yes. it quite clearly yes but there's more i don't know this is a bit of a digression but mm. it's just something that struck me that in a way kahulan is really acting like the lucky youngest son yes. that's so familiar to folk and fairy tale mm. with his older brothers yes Yes, the two older brothers go off and attempt something and fail, although they often pretend that they haven't failed. But it's always the youngest who gets it right and actually wins and the often prize. Often with the help of another world yeah. or a helper animal. Yeah, yeah. Loig seems to conform to this, the yes. servant or the animal helper, yeah. and urges Cacolan, as we've mentioned, yeah. by insulting him. Yeah, exactly. He gives him that extra little push. Um, mind you, there's also, as you said earlier on, we were talking, I mean, the title of this series is um, Dinianicus and the Art of Mythic Storytelling. Yeah. And it's not lacking in Dinianicus elements, is well, it? Well, exactly. And, but what, what makes it interesting as a Dinianicus is that it is much more island-wide. You know, it's more about how to journey around the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. You know, it does have those little local bits. You know, it has the whole... Well, we have the cave of the cats, a Kruachan, which the cats have come out of. We've got that. We've or got the drowning of Drumstar. Exactly. You know, we've got those little specific local ones. But then there's also overall, there's it's like a story map of the the whole island. Yeah, you know, yeah. and the different ways that you can go around yeah. it. You know, and even the fact that those that the three of them all have different routes back. Uh, to Evwin Macha in this last little section here 
is kind of showing you know different ways of navigating yeah, the country. Yeah, it's sort of linking these links the centres exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. These are the the heroes turn the wheels mm. which link all these hubs yes. and make the whole country spin. Exactly. Isn't yeah. Right? And uh, yet within within it are all these wonderful folktale yeah. elements. Yeah. Um well of course let's let's finally finish the story. Yes. Shemika stops the fighting, doesn't he? Yes, once he just again. Goes, uh, enough. Yes. And this time does what they planned to do in the first place. Yes, which was to send them for judgment to Kuroi. But there's another little aside or slight misdirection before that, because before they're going to get to Kuroi, they've got to go and meet this character called Bwitha, who's a son of someone called Bon. So he's yellow, the son of white. But it is Kuroi. There's, it is clearly. still another Kuroi episode in disguise. He is ubiquitous in this story. Oh, yes. Well... Next time we'll be going deeper into the, the other world. Of course. Exactly, it's all about. We've talked about Karoi. We've talked yeah. about all these prefigurings. Let's actually go there. Yes. Well, it's uh, other world, also known as Kerry, uh, Westminster. Well, I suppose so. it's the same thing, really, isn't it? In story terms. <laughs> Well, this has been fun and especially fun for us yes. because um, if there's any different in quality in recording today, <laughs> it's because it's been incredibly hot here. It's been that rarest of all rare things, an Irish summer. For a whole week, I over know. a week, with temperatures up to 29, 30 degrees. Celsius. Ooh, very hot. <laughs> yes. And uh, we decided that today, just for once, we were going to sit outside under the trees yeah. and record. So yeah. uh, we apologise for the sound of birds, bees. No, I don't apologise. For the the occasional the tractor, the tractors, and the plane going oh, overhead. <laughs> I, I, I do apologise for. It. <laughs> you know, usually if a plane goes overhead here, yeah. we run outside to see what's gone wrong <laughs> or to flash them. Yes, <laughs> we speak <for> yourself. <laughs> and, so uh, from our, this is farewell from our outside broadcast unit <laughs> for once, because I tell you, it's not going to happen very. It's as rare as the other world, <laughs> as, as a cock's egg, I believe. Oh, right, a cock and eye. Okay, yeah. Well, until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ogilith Nanagus Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.